How do I know what I think until I see what I say? The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of Mark Manson. Okay, quick heads up. There will be explicit language in this show. If you're familiar with Mark's work, you know that his style is very direct and is full of F-bombs. If you have no idea who Mark is, he's the author of three New York Times bestsellers to include the subtle art of not giving a fuck, everything is fucked, and the memoir he co-authored with Will Smith titled Will. And Universal Pictures also released a documentary-style movie based on The Subtle Art, which is now available everywhere that you can stream movies. And that's an equally insightful piece of work. It's just as insightful as the rest of his books. He's a modern-day philosopher with a large following. In this episode, Mark shares his story of how he ended up handing out life advice for a living, the concept of happiness, and things we can do to live more fulfilling lives. This is uh, an interview I've wanted to do since starting the podcast, and it was uh, an absolute honor to have 45 minutes to sit down with Mark. So grab your notebooks, and please welcome to the show, Mark Manson. What's up, man? It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you, Mark. I'm just going to like ease into this interview, so I'll just start with a softball question. What's the key to happiness? <laughs> Oh, that's easy. <laughs> We've known that for thousands of years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> obviously, uh, happiness is is a complicated subject, but generally speaking, the way I define happiness is it is that rare state where you don't want to change anything, which doesn't come around very often. And when it does, it doesn't last very long. <laughs> I appreciate that. There you have it. We're, that's the episode. Thanks for joining us today. <laughs> yeah, let's kind of like back up. Why do you think that's so hard, especially in the 21st century? Well, I think the nature of our world is that it is rapidly changing around us. And so even if we do get ourselves into one of those spots where we are perfectly content with everything that is going on in our life and in our environment, with our relationships, so much stuff changes and happens all the time that inevitably some sort of complication arises and we have to adjust. And it's that experience of needing adjustment that creates a sense of dissatisfaction. And, and there's a spectrum to that dissatisfaction. It can be anything from like, just a minor nuisance, like uh, I got to take out the trash this morning, all the way to, you know, life changing, uh, a tragedy in the family, a divorce or a breakup or, you know, a natural disaster, what have you. But the irony is that whenever that dissatisfaction arises and we confront it and we solve it, we rearrange ourselves and our lives to get back to that place where we don't feel like we need to adjust anything, 
that creates a great sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. And so there's like this weird tension between happiness and purpose. Like if you're just feeling good all the time, you actually start to feel a little bit empty because there doesn't seem to be any meaning or significance to it. But when you're constantly challenged and constantly dissatisfied, you are kind of rewarded with this sense of purpose. You feel like you're making the world a better place. You're making your life better, but you know, you're constantly pissed or anxious or (laughs) upset. So there's this constant like tug of war going on inside of ourselves. I know you read a lot. So have you ever read anything by uh, Alain de Bouton? I think I said it right. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like you're like the American version of him and your books are way easier to read than his. Uh, yeah, yeah. A little bit less posh and intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I meant by you're the American version. But he talks about we're like this advanced civilization balancing precariously on this emotional mind that hasn't developed much since we all lived in caves. Yeah. I think it's Steven Pinker who puts it, like he said, we're running on, you know, our software is decades old and our hardware is millennia old. And it's like the human brain is not evolving fast enough to keep up with all the information flows that are happening in modern society. Yeah. And you you hit on this in the, uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck the book and the movie if you don't read which <laughs> the movie is awesome we watched it yesterday it just came out last week but like yeah what i feel like our brains aren't wired for social media that bombardment of images of everybody else's life is awesome 24 mm. 7 which which you touch on both there's an open question of how much stimulation can our mind actually take before it starts to kind of break down in its functionality. I think anybody who has done any sort of digital detox, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, you know, whether it's actually deciding to put your phone down for a few days or going off in the wilderness on like a retreat or a camping trip, or I guess in in the military, maybe a mission or something, but like not having access to that constant stream of information, you realize that it does affect your mood. It affects your attention. It affects your sleep. So I think we're still wrestling with this. Like, how do we adapt to this new reality? Because it's not going to go away. I think like for me, um, and I've talked about this before on the show, I talked with Susan Cain about it. And Susan, she just published a book called Bittersweet. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the same thing. We have this, I don't know, like this weird desire towards everything in life has to be positive. (laughs) And uh, everything is awesome, like the Lego song. Yeah, But like, that's not life. And so for me, there was like this period where I was watching people's uh, posts on Instagram and Facebook all the time. Even though I knew this like intuitively, I was still like, man, like what's wrong with me? Like, why, why is everybody else have their shit together and not me? So it's interesting because I think a lot of what gets laid at the feet of social media is just kind of perennial human problems, right? So like, we've always compared ourselves to others. We've always struggled with questions of like, what's wrong with me? Why am I not more like this? Or why am I not more like that? We've always experienced a certain amount of moral anger (laughs) towards other people. It's just the internet and smartphones and social media, these things have all just accelerated, like amplified the availability of those experiences for us. So it used to be, I don't know, 50 years ago, people would have still have that same thought. You know, they'd walk outside to get their morning paper, look across the street, see that their neighbor has a new car, and they'd be thinking like, man, what am I doing wrong? Like my old piece of junk over here, like I, I'm I'm screwing up. But then that's the only time they're exposed to that situation the entire day. Now we're exposed to it dozens and dozens of times a day. And it's hard to know what sort of effect that has on us. You know, some psychologists think it does have a very deep emotional effect, like it drives us more towards anxiety and depression. I'm not completely convinced of that, but I definitely do think it is affecting our attention span. Like if you think about it, attention is basically prioritization. You're always choosing to focus on one thing in your environment or one piece of information over all others. And that by choosing to pay attention to something, you are 
usually subconsciously, there is a prioritization that is happening within your brain. And I think that perhaps by being exposed to so like thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of information each day, many of which are very emotionally intense, I worry that that internal prioritization gets kind of scrambled and messed up. And we start focusing really, really heavily on stupid shit that doesn't really matter. And I'm the last person who wants to go into politics. But like, if you look at our politics over the last 20 years, it is just constant people focusing on really dumb shit over and over. And meanwhile, like massive problems that everybody generally, the, the entire population left and right agrees is a problem, gets completely ignored, you know, because of whatever like silly thing is happening on the news that day. And so I, I do think that that concerns me a lot is like this inability to stop looking at the dumpster fire or the shiny, exciting thing and like pay attention to the work that needs to be done in front of everybody. That seems to be an issue. Yeah, I um, my reading is all over the place from like Mark Manson to Plutarch. <laughs> and so like I read a bunch of his stuff and it's kind of like they were dealing with the same thing just at like a a completely mm-hmm. different level. Like I want to say it was either like Plutarch or Marcus Aurelius was like, people are more apt to complain about the emperor than they are about like the stuff going on between their ears. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know? And so I just think it's like hyper energized because of the 24 hour news cycle, because of social media, mm-hmm. it's really easy to get upset about everything. And so I know that since reading your first book and then also just kind of doing my own, you know, introspection and realizing the effect this stuff was having on me, mm-hmm. I backed off of checking Instagram and Twitter and just like reading every five minutes or like checking the news every five minutes. Like I may check it once a day, once every two days. And I realized that like, hmm, I'm okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 You realize that 90% of it doesn't actually matter. I have a, there's an article on my website that I've kind of been preaching this recently. Um, I call it the attention diet. And basically the argument is to use physical health and food as an example. If you go back like 50, 60 years ago, industrialized food was invented. And so for the first time in human history, you have supermarkets full of prepackaged food, like microwavable dinners and canned goods and all this stuff, like all emerged kind of middle of the 20th, 20th century, which initially was like a huge deal, right? So it's before that, people used to have to spend eight hours a day cooking to feed their family of four. Now they could just go down to the supermarket, buy a few cans, maybe a something to pop in the microwave and they can feed their family in 30 minutes. You know, So it's a great innovation. But what we didn't realize is that that surplus of food, it made it very easy to just snack and eat junk nonstop 24-7. And that's what a lot of people did. So you start, you get all this heart disease problems and diabetes and obesity and people start, you know, cancer rates go up and all this stuff. And so as a reaction to that, maybe 20 years later, we started developing a culture of like diet and fitness and nutrition. And that culture of fitness and nutrition had to emerge as a response to kind of the new reality of food. We had, you had to develop like a physical diet for yourself to keep yourself healthy, to limit your caloric intake. I think the same thing is happening with information. Like the internet and smartphones unleash this infinite amount of information to all of us. And what we're realizing is that when you just sit there and consume all day, every day, you mentally get fat and lazy and slow and your your mental health breaks down. And so just the same way to get healthy physically, you have to pay attention to what you eat. You have to limit what you eat. I think mentally, we have to do the same thing. We have to get very, very strict with our information sources. Make sure we have nutritious information sources that they're coming from reliable sources and then also limit the consumption. You know, Don't sit on your phone all day. Don't read news like for four hours a day. Pick and choose a handful of people and sources that you trust, limit how much time you spend on it, 
and then get off and go back to the to the real world because that's what's going to keep you healthy and happy. I've also written about it, and uh, my buddy Joe McCormick he calls it infobesity. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Is like kind of like what we're suffering from. I compared it to eating like French fries and cheeseburgers for every meal. Like we would get absolutely sick. And so, you know, mixing it up with some vegetables, which would be like books, you know, like actual thoughtful material, Mm -hmm. not just material that's like looking to make a quick buck off our attention. And I've learned over time too, that like what we pay attention to becomes our reality. Yeah. I remember a month ago, whatever, like we spent the weekend in Prague because I'm living in Europe right now. And uh, like my mom and dad asked me about the crime rate there, you know, because like in America, like you watch news and the crime rate's terrible. And I was like, honestly, like I have no idea. All I know is I went there, I saw the historic stuff and we had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very American thing. Yeah. (laughs) I lived abroad for a while too. And and people in the US don't realize that like half the world is much safer than the US is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it's again, like if you're just watching, news all day of like bad shit happening then like your reality is bad shit's happening everywhere yep so yeah so i i kind of like rather live in ignorance (laughs) and enjoy life than uh than constantly be worried about it you know one one of the things that i've talked about you know when i do conventional media a lot of the times they start pushing me, obviously, because I don't know, maybe they feel attacked or something, but (laughs) they start pushing me on this. And they're like, well, there are all these problems in the world. Shouldn't we care about these problems? And yes and no. I think one thing that's happened is we've become way more aware of the global problems in the world, right? Like there's these massive, massive issues that maybe 30 years ago would have been difficult to know about, but today we're constantly exposed to them. And that's good because we're more aware. But on the other hand, it's kind of bad too, because it's impossible for us to affect those things, right? It's like, I I can't (laughs) fix the Ukrainian war. Like I can't. Why, Mark? Yeah. (laughs) Yet I'm sitting here reading about it every single day. Like I'm not going to go fix climate change, but like you hear enough about it and you just feel like an idiot throwing your your Coke can in the recycle bin. Like, well, that's not going to do anything. Like. So it kind of brings this feeling of uh, of despair, of like disempowerment, you know, like being so focused on global issues. Like an argument that I've been making is that I think we need to get back to focusing a little bit more on local issues, like things that we have the power to affect, you know? So it's like, look at your community, look at your city yeah. and, and stop, stop worrying about what's happening on the other side of the planet. <laughs> yeah. Like going back, remember, like, like we talked about, like we have the same software yep. as cavemen. And so basically like we're all cavemen finding out that bad stuff's going on, like seven caves over. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you'd be like, why are you guys, you guys should just worry about like getting your own food and like not, you know, not killing the people in your your little like small tribe there. Yeah. But yeah, we do the same thing. And so that's kind of like my litmus test of what I need to pay attention to. Can I affect it? Yes or no? Yeah. And I think that's why my reading and my like curiosity is built towards stuff that's more refined thinking, which um, I know different people have different learning styles. But for me, it's books Mm -hmm. because a lot goes into the creation of a book and the editing of ideas. And even, I mean, like I know your blog posts, like you just don't type and throw them up. Like there's an editorial process there. You have your research assistant, double check the stuff that you're doing. But I think like it's so easy to get sucked into kind of the late breaking things that are happening every five minutes now. Yeah, there's an emotional seduction to it. Because again, it kind of comes back to that original point where problems suck, but they they feel meaningful. They like give our our lives a sense of meaning and purpose. And so there's like a certain attraction there, the same way that it's like eating potato chips. There's there's an attraction there. It's like so easy to walk past the potato chips in the kitchen and be like, I'll just have a few. And then next thing you know, you eat the whole bag. It's like, well, you're scrolling on Twitter. You see a bunch of horrible shit happening on the other side of the planet. You're like, well, I'll just read one article. And, you know, next thing you know, an hour has gone by and you're freaking out that like, 
civilization is over. And so it's, you know, it's the same kind of process happening. Yeah. I realize now that we just totally went off on a, down a rabbit hole, which is a metaphor for social media, everyone. <laughs> Getting back, you mentioned, you know, when I asked you about happiness, you started talking about purpose. Mm -hmm. What have you learned through your life? Because you've been blogging now since what, 2008? Yep. And then you started markmanson.net in 2013. So we're going on year 10. What have you learned about purpose through that entire process? Purpose is, it's a very, so kind of like happiness, it's a temporary thing. Although I think the half-life of purpose is probably much longer than happiness. Purpose changes over time. It's, I think the biggest misconception that people have is, you know, they feel, they feel a little bit lost. They feel like a lack of meaning. And they think like, oh, I just need to find some sort of purpose in my life. And then everything will be kind of sorted out. But purpose is also a moving target. It's what brings you purpose today may not five years from now. And I think that needs to be okay. I think a lot of people, when they experience that, they think they're doing something wrong. They think something's wrong with them, that they screwed up somehow. And it's like, no, it's like anything else. Life changes, the world changes, you change. And so your sense of purpose is going to change as well. And it's, it actually should, because that's kind of an indication that you're growing and evolving. So for me, I think it's useful to kind of check in, do a major check-in of like, how meaningful do I feel like my work is? How meaningful do my relationships feel? Like do that check-in, I'd say at minimum, like once a year to kind of see where you're at so that you can change trajectory if you need to. But it's an active question that should be asked repeatedly, kind of like a hygiene, like a mental hygiene. I was actually writing about this the other day. I kind of equate it to like no fear t-shirts. Do you remember those? I remember those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like in the nineties, I love my no fear t-shirts. I love telling people that second place was the first loser. <laughs> and at the time they fit me, you know, like yeah. I like the shirts, they fit me, they worked for me. But now if I was to go back, like one, I wouldn't wear those. But if I was to like go back into my high school closet and try to throw a, the, one of the no fear t-shirts I used to wear on, like it would be ugly. And yeah. uh, <laughs> I like kind of equate purpose to that too. Like whatever your favorite t-shirt from high school, you wouldn't continue to wear it throughout the rest of your life. Like it fit you in the moment, Yeah. but eventually you outgrow it through your life experiences. And so to, to your point of like constantly checking in, it's like the shirt wasn't for not, like it was perfect at the time. The purpose was perfect at the time, but now I need to let go. And, and I think that's one of the problems, at least my, my opinion, Mark, is that a lot of people get like distracted in life. Like they get distracted with social media. They get distracted with, with late breaking news. And then they, they keep wearing their no fear t-shirts long after the shirt doesn't <laughs> fit them anymore. Yeah. And then like they have anxiety, they're not happy. They didn't do the check-ins, the hygiene like you talk about. I love using kind of the thinking about yourself in high school as a tool because I think generally speaking, most of us are a little bit embarrassed about <laughs> whatever we did or cared about in high school. But you should feel a little bit of that because that kind of means that you've evolved, that you've grown from that. Like I think about my 20s now, I'm in my late 30s, but I think about my 20s and I kind of cringe a little bit now. And I think that's a good thing. I think you should. How has the writing changed you over the years? Because I know like at first you started out as, and I never saw your website like pre-2013, but I guess mm. like from what I've heard you say, you were kind of like a Tucker Max type uh, <laughs> Like just gratuitous dating advice, but now you're helping people figure out life. How have you developed through that process? Yeah. So, I mean, early in my career, it was, like you said, kind of Tucker Max-ish. So it was, it was writing about, you know, I was in my mid twenties. I was writing about my crazy party life, my dating life, relationship disasters that I went through. And I built my initial audience around that. Like it was kind of like just this crazy dude doing crazy things. And that slowly kind of evolved into, you know, a lot of a lot of young guys would come to me and ask for advice about issues they were going through or some girl they liked or, you know, their ex 
left them and how do they get her back? Like, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I kind of just went with it uh, initially just because I had nothing else going on. And I was like, well, I'll give this a try, you know, and if if I end up being horrible at it, then people will just stop reading me. So might as well see see if I've got anything interesting to say. And And it really, it started to like go well. I noticed that I had a knack for kind of just understanding people's psychology and their emotions and how they see the world or how how they react to the world. And I did that for a few years and I started, I realized two things. The, the first thing was, I think I got to be like 27 or 28 and I started to out, kind of outgrow, for lack of a better term, the Tucker Max stuff. Like I was like, man, I don't want to be 40 and like still going to bars and like writing about chicks I'm banging. Like that, yeah. <laughs> that, that is, sounds like a horrible way. Is Mark wearing a high school letter jacket right now? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Like basically become like the Al Bundy of the internet. <laughs> like, <laughs> like four touchdowns, one game, you know, 20 years later. So I was like, I need to change. Like I need to, I've got something going here, but I need to turn this into an actual career. I can't just be like writing about girls I met at parties the rest of my life. And then the other thing I started to notice around the same time was that most of the advice side of what I was doing, you know, guys would come to me and they're like, well, I went on this date with this chick and she was great and everything went great. And then she won't text me back. And, you know, initially, Early on, it was like, oh, dude, you got to, you know, you got to text her this or maybe you send her that and you see if she responds. And if she does, then it means this and whatever. After a couple of years, I just started to realize that like, there's no such thing as a dating problem. Like every dating problem is really just a personal problem that is being manifested through relationships. Like re- relationships are really just lenses that show each person's emotional maturity and emotional development. So if you are a very, like, if you've got a lot of baggage, a lot of issues, if you're not emotionally like strong or mature person, the first place that that's going to surface is in your romantic life. That's the part of your life that's going to like access that. And so I started writing about deeper and deeper topics of like, okay, let's like, let's forget about texting her back. Like, let's talk about self-esteem for a minute, you know? And then I do a big article about that or like, let's put aside the, you know, getting your ex back. Let's talk about why you feel like you need to get your ex back. Like why, what is it? Why don't you feel like you have a future without this person? And so the, the topic started to get much heavier and more personal and more psychological in nature. And it, it reached a point where I was like, I should just stop calling this dating advice. I should just, it's just life advice at this point, you know? And by that point too, a large percentage of my audience had become women. So I was like, okay, there's, let's just write for everybody. So that's when I changed my website and kind of transitioned into what I do now. And like, even now, like it's 2023. So like, I look back 10 years ago and I'm writing stuff on like, First of all, the tone of my writing 10 years ago <laughs> was very ballsy. And, uh, you know, like I'm telling people how to run meetings, how to lead organizations and stuff like that. And then now I've gotten to the point where like I realize that know thyself is probably the most important thing, mm-hmm. like self-knowledge, you know, before we do anything else. So that's what a lot of my writing is about now is reading, writing and reflection. Yeah. Have you seen like a kind of an evolution in yours from like dating to life advice to, you know, Mark Manson in 2023? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I think like you, I've chilled out a little bit. Um, (laughs) It's funny because I look back on that time and I feel like back then there was still a lot of, I guess, opportunity in terms of, like there were very few people like independently publishing stuff. So there was a lot of opportunity to just kind of, you know what? I'm going to come out and talk about this stuff as if I know what I'm talking about. And if I do, the market will reward me. Like people will reward, like people will listen to me. And if I don't, they won't, you know? So there was back then, there was kind of nothing to lose by taking that aggressively confident stance. Because if you were full of shit, like you're, the readers would immediately let you know and you would change course or whatever. 
whereas I feel like today, like things are so crowded and so saturated that you have to be a lot more careful and thoughtful about what you put out there. Like it takes a lot more effort these days to, I guess, sit and make sure an idea is a good idea and make sure it's also an original idea because there's so much stuff being said. So I've definitely, I think some of that is age, but I think some of that is just kind of the, the nature, the conditions of independent publishing in the world right now. Like it's feeling much more difficult to say something new and original and useful that hasn't been said 20 times already. So like it's definitely slowed down a little bit. What I've noticed, like even with my own stuff is that people are continually going through the stages of life. Mm -hmm. So there's always somebody that's coming to the realization that maybe everything's not right in my life. Yeah. You know? And so like, for me, again, like I read everything from ancient to modern. So even like in preparation for this interview, I was like super excited. I was like, hey, have you guys, you guys read Mark, like Mark Manson? And they're like, who? <laughs> and I'm like, are you serious? And I, I realized that I think like certain ideas, certain wisdom just needs to have people come along yeah. and continually beat the drum of it, which, which is like something that I feel like you do, Ryan Holiday does, like James Clear does especially when there's so many like hacks and like just crap out there right now. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. That's the thing about these subjects is they, they never change the things we know about happiness or we've known for thousands of years, things we've known about habits and productivity, mostly known for thousands of years. What changes is when people are ready to hear it or looking for those, those messages and that information. And like you said, it's, you know, some people, are ready to hear it at a very young age, want to hear it at a very young age. Some people, it doesn't hit them until they're in their 30s or 40s or 50s. But that's the beauty of this type of information is that it's it's universal. Like it never gets old. Like knowing how to get over loss is like never going to be relevant because <laughs> it is yeah, such a yeah. fundamental part of the human condition. Lately, like I, I've been diving into like Gilgamesh and Bhagavad Gita and just like, like, again, like old stuff and um, like Joseph Campbell's works, like mm -hmm. I've been deep diving that over the last year. And I realized it's like re, I want to say like repackaging, but making it more accessible to people today. Like I, I recognize that I struggled with like getting through a hero with a thousand faces. Mm -hmm. I know majority of the people that read from the green notebook aren't going to want to tackle that book because it's so obscure, but there's so many great lessons about, you know, the hero's journey, learning who you are, learning your values, and then aligning your life in accordance with that. Yeah. That I feel like I need to, I need to write about it now. So just somebody who stumbles upon, you know, the stuff I'm writing, it may help them out. Yeah, for sure. Shifting gears a little bit, man. Like I just listened to Will. Mm. absolutely loved that book, you know, because I grew up listening to his music. I grew up watching the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and then just to hear the kind of arc of, of his story. What did you learn through that process of writing somebody's life, especially because like you're what, like 38 mm -hmm. and Will's in his early fifties. So he's like a little bit further along the journey than you are. Oh Yeah. And definitely way, way ahead in some categories. You know, for me, it was most of the lessons I took. I mean, look, obviously, he has an incredible life story. And my job with him was to capture that story and kind of piece it together and make sure the lessons are pulled out of that that story for the book. But by that point, I had spent 10 years writing about life journeys and trauma and emotions and growing from pain and all, all these concepts, right? So it, on one level, his story is just kind of like another person's story. Like, sure, there's, it's kind of an extreme example, but the fundamental principles of like what he went through in his childhood and how he overcame challenges early in his career, like the, these are all pretty universal principles that are just applied to a pretty special and unique story. What I got personally from being around him is just the level of, this is going to sound funny given the the Oscar slap, but the level of professionalism and the level of just knowing how to 
collaborate, knowing how to work with a team, knowing how to lead a team. I'm, as you said, like I'm still a fairly young guy. It's, I'm still pretty early in my career. And as an author, like I've never worked with a lot of people, you know, being an author is a very solitary pursuit. The team that runs my website is pretty small. We all work remotely. So I'm not really like managing them day to day. So it it was pretty awesome to be around somebody who's at the top of his field, such a massively competitive field, is such a public figure and is able to handle all of it with a certain amount of professionalism and comfort. You know, I, I spent about two years on and off with him, like kind of shadowing him for periods of time and doing a lot of interviews. And, you know, we would we would walk through a hotel lobby and he would just get mobbed by people. And I'm like, man, he's nicer to his fans than I am. <laughs> like yeah. this is I should learn something from this. Uh it was really for me, it was like a master class on, you know, how to be a public figure, how to maintain creativity and your individuality with all these pressures on you, how to how to manage like lead a team, kind of like run a business that's built around you. For me, it was just I can't really place a value on it because it's like how often do you get to be around a person like that? I'm just curious as a writer. So one of the things I did before this job was that I helped senior leaders communicate. And part of that was like channeling their voice Mm -hmm. in writing. So like as I'm writing, I'm not writing with my voice. I'm literally hearing them talking Yeah. as I'm like banging stuff out on the keyboard. Did that happen to you with with Will? And and I asked that because I think we talked about this before the interview. But like I did a crash course on like your your latest stuff over the last week. So mm-hmm. I I listened to the entire book in a couple of days and I sat down to write and all of a sudden I found myself writing in Will's voice. <laughs> and I had to like stop myself. Were did you did you kind of do the same thing? Yeah, well, I tried to write in his voice, although it was very hard. I mean, he has such a distinct voice and I mean, also he's a black dude from West Philly and I'm a middle class white boy from Texas. So it's, there's a pretty big gap in terms of just cultural background, I guess. But I tried my best. I mean, the thing about Will is his strength as a writer, like he's actually a good writer. His strength is like, if you give him, you say, Hey, write a story about the first episode, the pilot episode of Fresh Prince, like write, write the story like that two, two pages, right? He can write that and he'll crush it. Like, it's amazing. The problem for him is as soon as you expand the scope to like, hey, write about the early period of your career and the the biggest themes and lessons that came from it. That's where he like starts to kind of get lost. So I was very fortunate in that my role in the co-authorship was to basically structure everything. You know, he and I used to talk about it like, I'm building the foundation and the structure of the house. And then he's coming in and painting the walls and decorating and putting all the furniture everywhere. So I was very fortunate in that I wasn't expected to sound exactly like him because he came in afterwards and rewrote large sections of the book or reworded a lot of things where I failed to sound like him. So I tried my best. I also relied a lot on like audio interviews with him yeah. um, to kind of get, you know, if I had, if I knew I had an audio of him talking about a certain story, I would use as much of his exact words as possible when writing that, that story. But to me, that was the hardest thing by far was just like trying to sound like this dude. <laughs> yeah. For me, like I actually enjoyed doing that. Like in my previous jobs, like I love spending time with somebody they would say key phrases because I was I was with them so much that I would write those key phrases down. Yeah. And they just kind of like slide them in. It was almost like a challenge for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it is. I used to think of it. I used to call them willisms. So, <laughs> you know, he has this thing. He loves to use like really, really extravagant adjectives. So like me, I'm I'm pretty simple. Like when in my own writing, you'll never hear me use something ridiculous, you know, like flamboyant language, but he loves these like really big extravagant adjectives. So, you know, you'll tell him a story and he's like, that is 
exquisitely fabulous. And I'm, and I'm like, all right, <laughs> we'll go with exquisitely fabulous. You know, or, or he like, if you tell him a, like a story of like something going wrong, his response is always like, oh, that's a tragedy. <laughs> like he just, it's such a part. And it, it's funny too, because it makes sense. If you've seen a bunch of his movies, it makes sense. Like, but it's just a fundamental part of his personality that like he jumps to the most extreme interpretation linguistically, I guess. Everything's like incredible or tragedy. There's no, there's never like a good or that was fine or that kind of sucks. Like it's either brilliant or tragedy. <laughs> I think because like I've had experience doing that, I was listening to his book trying to figure out like where Will ended and like mm -hmm. where Mark began. And so I'd be like, ah, oh, like Will's sharing his story. But now he's showing how this story happens to a lot of people. That's Mark. Yeah. So anyway, that was a weird nerdy game that I'm now sharing with everybody listening. I would also like to uh, encourage anybody listening to this who who is interested in in that book, definitely check out the audio book. Yes. Not only did Will record it himself, but he fucking killed it. <laughs> and like he he actually went back and got like old recordings like demos of his early rap career he actually went and got like people from early in his life like recordings of people early in his life to like play during the audio like he went back and got the old gospel choir from his neighborhood in philly like it's really amazing i loved it man and i i actually like i, I kept finding myself pausing the book i thought i was just gonna learn about will mm -hmm. but then like again the lessons that were a part of it you know, just kind of like how to live. Will's like a case study for anybody. Yep. Hitting the pause on the audiobook and taking notes on my iPhone. It was absolutely amazing. So I'll, I will double down <laughs> on your recommendation. So one of the questions I have is, I would imagine that like when you started, you read a lot just for the sake of reading. Mm -hmm. But as you've produced more material, like your readings probably have gotten like more focused. Do you still read? books or are you like very targeted now if that makes any sense it's funny like i i've actually gone through phases i had a phase early in my career i guess you know the moment i realized like oh shit people are actually taking me seriously <laughs> you know but this is like very early on maybe a year or two into into my career i was like oh my god like strangers are actually coming to my website and listening to what i have to say I felt a pretty strong moral obligation to actually kind of educate myself on a lot of these topics. And so I went on a very intense reading binge early in my career for probably two or three years. Every book I could get a hold of around happiness, relationships, emotions, you know, psychology, goals, habits, everything. And then it kind of chilled out and died off for a little bit. And then I kind of went through this second wave of that sort of stuff maybe five years ago. You know, there are a lot of books you, you mentioned before that, you know, talk going back to the classics and the ancients. And I realized like I had been exposed to some of that stuff in college, but there are a lot of books, classic books that I always wanted to read and I never made time yes. for. Yes. And it seemed given my profession and my audience and everything, it seemed like an appropriate investment of my time to kind of go back and go through all that. So I went through another period, probably like 2017 through like 2020 of going back, reading a lot of the old philosophers, a lot of classic literature, a lot of that sort of stuff. Another intense period of of a lot of, a lot of biographies of historical figures during the pandemic in particular, I read a lot of history because one of the things that, you know, you brought up earlier, like history for me is so therapeutic because you realize so quickly that all the stuff that you thought, all the problems that you thought were like unique to today. Yeah, yes. You go back and you're like, like I read, I remember during the pandemic, I read, um, shit, what's the guy's name? I, I, the, the, Ron Chernow's biography of George Washington. It's like 900 pages. Dude, I'm reading it right now. I'm struggling through it. <laughs> it's so thick. It's so good though. It yeah, is so yeah. good. It's so funny too, because it's all of the stuff that we were dealing with in 2020 in the US. It's like 
Washington dealt with that. Like the exact same shit happened in the 1790s. Like there was a pandemic. Washington ordered like the cities to shut shut down. A bunch of people were like, fuck you. We're Americans. You can't shut us <laughs> down. Like it was, it, it was fucking bedlam. It was absolutely nuts. There was a, there was a electoral crisis. Like there was like threats of, you know, one party was like, we're just going to go off and do our own thing. So there was all the same stuff was happening. I'm like, man, nothing changes. Like history, I, it's so therapeutic in that sense. And it also, it just, it helped, it reaffirms like who you are. It actually made me reading a lot of American history during the pandemic made me a lot more strangely optimistic about the U.S. in a time where like nobody is optimistic about the U.S. It made me a lot more optimistic because I'm like, man, we have been through so much shit. This is nothing. This is absolutely nothing. (laughs) And I think, I think because like, if you watch news, you watch social media, you have like a soda straw view of the world. Yeah. And what you're talking about is you're, you have this like long lens now. Yeah. Another like example from the Chernow book, like one of the things I try to do is like, hey, I'm gonna get all this nice stuff for for my guys. Like I'm gonna build up this gym. And then I find out that uh well they've broken a bunch of the stuff in the gym. And then you read Washington like tried to get all these uniforms and clothes for his soldiers. Yeah. And then he found out that they were selling them. And he's like, guys, come on. (laughs) That book is so great. I've been recommending that book like crazy especially to Americans, because it's, I think we have such a cartoonish view of what, like the stuff I learned in high school about Washington. Like I look back now and it's like a cartoon, you know, it's like father of our country. Great. I mean, he is all those things, but he had such a fucked up background. He's such an impressive guy, but he's also got his like neuroticisms and tics and there's stuff and there's stuff like that. Like, again, I think the history, the high school history you get, like very much romanticizes the revolution. It romanticizes Washington. It rom- we romanticize the founding fathers in general. And it's funny because that book, it both made me realize that I had completely underestimated Washington. Like he is so much more of a badass than I ever thought he was. We also kind of overestimated him. Like he's so human. Like you said, he's a normal guy, like complaining of like, God, can't these guys like fucking get up on time? Like, <laughs> clean your guns guys what's what's wrong with you you know like it's so funny to see him struggle through the quotidian mundane shit that we all still struggle through today i think that's a great point to kind of like start winding this thing down is if we have this godlike herculean image of people mm-hmm. and then like we try to live up to it one of the things i've struggled with mark is like drinking that's been one of my achilles heels and then to like but then when you like dive into a good biography one of my favorites is Grant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Grant struggled with it so bad that he had people on his staff to be like, no, like we're not going to have <laughs> bottles of wine at this event because you know, Ulysses, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. I just think that's real important because it's like, hey, like, no, nah, we're all human. You just need to do the best that you can do in life. Yeah. Last question, man. What are you reading right now? Besides, uh, besides Chernow's Washington, like, like what, <laughs> what are some other books? Well, so to kind of get back to the phase thing, it's funny because when I finished Will's book, it came out about a year ago. So early 2020, I, I just come off a period of like, I wrote three books in four years, did a movie, a lot of burnout. So I took a few months off beginning of last year. And it's funny, like I kind of chilled out on the books too. I was like, I'm I'm not going to, I'm only going to read for fun. Like I'm not going to read because I feel like I need to read something. So I'm actually in a much kind of more relaxed phase again about my reading. I'm not, I don't have like a huge stack of books with me at all times. And, and I'm kind of like just cool with that. To answer your question, I've actually been reading a lot of fiction the last year. Been reading some sci-fi, some fantasy. I think the book I'm reading right now is David Goggins has a new book out, which uh, I think I'm like maybe a third of the way into, but I love Goggins. He's like, speaking of cartoons, like that's, that dude is like, (laughs) he's like a fucking walking, talking mascot for resilience. (laughs) That's awesome, Mark. Okay. So you're back in it again. Like you had Mindfuck Monday. Now you have the breakthrough. What are some other things that, in 2023 folks can look for it with you so the film is out uh subtle art not giving a fuck um you can get it on demand 
on any online streaming service. And then got the new newsletter just launched it's called Breakthrough. If you go to markmanson.net slash breakthrough. The cool thing we're doing with that is that I'm actually asking readers to send me replies of like, basically like, if this newsletter helped you, reply to me and tell me how it helped you. And then we're tracking all of those replies and then we're posting the best ones each week for everybody to read. Um, so that's been a lot of fun. That's been like very gratifying to kind of share that with the with the audience and the community. And then um, I'm going to start writing in the next book pretty soon. So that will probably be another two-year process. It usually is a two-year process. And then one thing I'll... I'll uh... Your Instagram as well, like you're getting more into the media, mm-hmm. like video, like short videos, right? Yeah, so doing doing a lot of video recording. So Instagram, YouTube, if you prefer it in that format, check me out. That's awesome, Mark. Well, hey, I appreciate your time this evening. This was a fun interview. Absolutely, man. It's my pleasure. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts, it helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out and our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud, desert on my hands, strong like a tree, there's roots where I stand, oh I've been running from the